Hello and welcome back to the Nowhere Office. I'm Julia Hobsbawm. And I'm Stefan Stern. In this programme, we explore the present and future of what we call the Nowhere Office, how our working lives are evolving and what the future may look like. And we ask, what are our great expectations in making hybrid work? So we're joined by John Clifton, CEO of Gallup, one of the most illustrious brand names in polling and in in corporate life around the world and in America especially. And he's written a terrific book, an important book called Blind Spot, The Global Rise of Unhappiness and How Leaders Missed It. John, welcome. How long have you been at Gallup? Quite a while. Quite a while. Yeah, probably uh, kind of my whole life. I actually started doing maintenance at Gallup when I was a lot younger in high school. Then I switched to text analytics, which was an internship, but I started full-time after I graduated from law school, I think January of 2008. So I've been with the company for 14 to 15 years now. So have you had a desk all of that time? (laughs) Of course, I still do have a desk. Yeah. Do you mean, do do I have a cubicle? Well, what do you have? You know, we like to ask our we like to ask our guests. You know, where do you work? How do you work? Yeah, so I have a cubicle. We have an open office plan in Washington D.C. And then, you know, of course, when we have conference rooms, we can jump into those if we need to do various calls. But yeah, I have a cubicle. So the the blush has not fallen from the rose for you and office life. Has Gallup changed its plans around flexible working or use of offices at all? No, we've fully engaged in flexible work. People at Gallup may choose to work from home on various days, but we also do heavily encourage them to come into the office because you know we believe that there's nothing that is close to human-to-human interaction. Well, that brings us to your book, John. It's 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 so clear when you when you when you present the data and the argument that uh, something was something was missed. Tell us first what you think that thing was missed by leaders around the world and and then let's think about what we can do about stopping failing to ending the missing of all that of all that business we about 15 years ago wanted to start tracking metrics that are very different from what leaders are used to right now leaders everywhere follow metrics like gdp whether or not it's growing or contracting they follow metrics like unemployment but what they don't track on a national level is how people feel and we think that's a problem And so 15 years ago, we started asking people, do you feel a lot of stress in life? Do you feel a lot of anger? How about sadness, physical pain, or worry? And what we found is that about 10 years ago, that started increasing everywhere globally. And it's been increasing straight for an entire decade. And we first launched this information about two years ago, right in the middle of the pandemic. And we warned the world that Gallup has come up with this finding that people are more negative than they ever have been in the history of our tracking. And people said back to us, well, why is that a surprise? There's a pandemic that's collectively uh, ruining all of our lives. So why should we be surprised? And I think the concern is, is, and the reason why people missed it, is the very fact that the rise started eight years before the pandemic. And of course, the pandemic did, in fact, collectively make everyone's lives worse. But this global rise of unhappiness started long before the pandemic. It did, actually, because the OECD was tracking the Better Life Index and the very famous uh, 2008, I think, speech and report by Joseph Stieglitz and the Sen Fitusi report on measuring 
you know, happiness as a measure of GDP, but you did jump on it very early, didn't you? What was the decision-making process around that? Why, why did that shift happen? Well, let's first address what the OECD is doing, because I agree with you. What the OECD is doing around the Better Life Index is very important. And the data under that's underneath it is actually Gallup's data from the Gallup World Poll. So we're thrilled that they're using our life evaluation metrics. That I didn't know be, that. Let's that's be, interesting. But let's be very clear about this, because a lot of times the narrative that's taking place is in rich countries. And OECD is a club of rich countries. And when we look at the SDGs and the progress on the SDGs that are put out by the United Nations, we know that there are at least 80 countries that not only don't have funds to get a statistics plan, they also don't have uh, a statistics plan at all. And so basic data like births and deaths aren't even getting collected in many poor countries. So if those are absent, why would we assume that there's data on how people feel? I think this is a massive challenge that a lot of times that leaders, when they're doing a global analysis, they're focusing on rich countries where there's just so many other countries that are just struggling to have data. I notice actually the International Labour Organization does at least attempt to compile global data, but that when it comes to the picture about working patterns, for example, I'm struggling with my researcher hat to amass reliable data around the world, precisely because of this problem you articulate, which no one has spelt out before, that, that you know, it's one thing to track wealthy economies, and it's another to track the poor countries. What do you think is going to happen around that? Who, what has got to change to make a better rounded global picture? I think there are two issues. Number one is money, and number two is trust. The first one is just a very basic money problem when it comes to data collection. So if you take a country like Burundi, one of the poorest countries in the world, they just can't afford good statistics on collecting labor force statistics. Why? Because it's expensive. Here in the United States, when before unemployment is announced, I think it's the second week of the following month, the way that that's collected is a survey. The Bureau of Labor Statistics interviews 60,000 Americans, takes them about an hour to ask them whether or not they have a job. Um, but fundamentally, in places like Burundi, they just don't have enough funds in order to cover that. So when the ILO makes its global projection, a lot of times they're using estimates in order to fill those gaps. So that's why what you're experiencing is a massive problem that's facing the world. So as I mentioned, that's the first problem, which is money. The second issue is trust. Because a lot of times people say that statistics should not be produced by the private sector. They should be produced by the public sector because we will trust them. Well, that assumes that people trust statistics. And we had a reporter call in. Actually, they were calling, I think it was about Venezuela, if I remember correctly, because what they were wondering was, were the statistics that were being put out by the government statistics that they could trust? Now, I'm not taking a particular position on whether or not statistics in Venezuela can be trusted. But what the point is, is that the fact that a journalist called in and said, I'm not sure if I can actually trust that particular country's data is a massive problem. And I think this is one of the places that the private sector can actually be helpful so that when we're checking the public sector data that we're, that many people all over the world, even in rich countries, they can see whether or not the data that they're consuming is actually correct. You remind me about not spotting things though, uh, John. Uh, after the 2016 US presidential election, almost overnight, Joan Williams wrote that piece for Harvard Business Review about the voters who hadn't, the unhappiness among voters that hadn't been picked up. But it was particularly a class-based analysis, but 
But but have you is this part of the same kind of pattern of not spotting? You talk about the book as the blind spot, but not leaders not spotting what's really happening on the ground. Not not good enough data, not granular enough data, not listening to enough of the right people. I I would say it's all of that. And look, this kind of information is still in a very nascent phase. When GDP hit the street in about 1937, when Simon Kuznets went to Congress and said, let's create an actual metric so we can gauge whether or not the economy is growing or contracting, almost 100 years later, we're still grappling with whether the metrics that we put in to measure GDP are actually right. So imagine if in about the 1950s, you were asking leaders about GDP per capita, they would have been in a very early stage in terms of trying to figure out what it is. So for example, Julia, you had mentioned the OECD Better Life Index. The metric that they use in terms of gauging how people are living their lives is people life satisfaction. They rate their lives on a scale of zero to 10. But does that capture the daily pain that people are experiencing? Does it capture daily stress? Does it capture daily anger? And we would suggest that it doesn't. And that's why we have these other metrics on life affect that help leaders understand about what is taking place in people's lives. And again, we can see that this is rising almost everywhere in the world. And it's rising massively in places like India, places like China, Mexico, and Brazil. So Again, while I think that some of these metrics are available, we're still in a very nascent phase. And the other thing is, is we don't have data that are globally comparable. So a lot of times a country will build their own statistics, but those statistics that they build may have different questions. They may have different methodologies. And the challenge with that is that when you roll them up, like The Economist does in the back of its newspaper every single week, the data aren't equally comparable. And that's a challenge. So that's another place where we need globally harmonized statistics, because if something's working for one country, the rest of the world needs to know what it is that they're doing so that we can all benefit from it. Let's turn to the substance of your book, John. Why the word unhappiness and what do you mean by it? So what we mean by unhappiness is asking people about these five negative emotions, anger, pain, stress, sadness, and worry. And what we found is that when we asked people, did you experience a lot of the falling all day yesterday? They're far more likely to tell us yes than they have at any point in the history of our tracking. Now, the next question is why? The other question, again, which is one of the variables that fits into the OECD's Better Life Index is life evaluation, where we say to people, rate your life on a scale of zero to 10, where 10 is the best possible life and zero is the worst possible life. Where do you stand today? So 15 years ago, when we started asking that to the world, Um, we found that it was around 3% of people said, I have the best imaginable life. My life's a 10. And uh, we found that about one and a half percent said, my life's a zero. My life actually can't get any worse. In fact, a gentleman in Lebanon that we'd asked to, he said, my life is zift, which is the Arabic word for tar. It can't get any darker. So these are real people's stories that they're telling us. But we continue to ask this life evaluation question and fast forward 15 years today when we say rate your life on a scale of zero to 10. Now we find that almost 8% of the entire world says I have the perfect life imaginable. It can't get any better. And then when we find that people who say my life is a zero cannot get any worse, it's almost quadrupled. Now it's also almost 8%. So there is a a growing divide in terms of what we call well-being inequality. And when you isolate the top quintile and the bottom quintile of the people who rate their lives the best and those who rate their lives the worst, the growing divide is even more evident. Now, what does this have to do with anger, stress, sadness, physical pain, and worry? What it has to do with is the people who say that my life is near a zero or a zero, 
and those that keep rating their lives worse and worse, they're the ones that are seeing a lot more anger, stress, sadness, physical pain, and worry. In fact, you could explain most of the rise just based on isolating those individuals. So what we did and what we've done throughout the course of our research is we try to find what is it that the people who say that their lives are a 10, what do they have in common? And the people who say their lives are zero, what do they have in common? And ultimately, we find that there are five things. Number one, money matters. Money doesn't buy happiness, but if you're poor, it's hard to be happy is the bottom line. The next piece is your job. We spend an insane amount of our lives at work. And so how you're doing at work matters. Your community well-being is huge, whether or not you live in a community, not just where if you have the basic infrastructure and feel safe, but whether or not the people in the community give back for each other. The second to last is physical well-being. And physical well-being, according to the WHO, is really made up of two things, whether or not you are physically active. And the second thing is whether or not you are eating in a healthy way. But the challenge right now in the world is that there's a growing number of people who don't have anything to eat at all. Um, and the global rise of hunger began in 2014. So for those that think that the war in Ukraine started this global hunger crisis, then they haven't been paying attention. And the last piece is social well-being. It's not just whether or not you have friends, but whether or not you have quality friends. And right now we find that there are 300 million people in the world who don't have a single friend. And it's no longer an exaggeration to say that not having a friend can increase your chances by dying by 50%. And the other piece is, is quality friends. So we find that there are 20% of people around the world that don't have a single quality friend, anyone that they can rely on in times of need. So those are the five contributors and hunger, loneliness, and work right now are what we would identify as kind of the three single biggest drivers of what's causing the global rise of unhappiness. It just brings me to that that interesting comment you have from Danny Kahneman, I think right at the front of the book about there are two ways of looking at this. It's about the, that pursuit of happiness, but also the avoidance or the reduction of misery. And you can, you can do both, right? It's like inequalities can be addressed at both ends. And what you're talking about actually, of course, is at the bottom end is, 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 misery to use the old the old-fashioned word that's exactly right and he says and he said this to us multiple times so when we started the gallup world poll he was one of our advisors in terms of developing this questionnaire and the reason we wanted him involved is because of of course his work with behavioral economics i mean this is an economist who is also a psychologist and so understanding at a macro level how people feel and ultimately how that impacts decision making i mean there's even research that suggests that how we feel impacts our cognition. So understanding at a macro level and capturing how countries, people in countries are feeling, we wanted his insights. And actually, he's the one that advised us to capture these indicators of anger, stress, sadness, physical pain, and worry. So it was very helpful in the development of this process. But no, it was him that said to us, this is not, uh, the role of society shouldn't be getting the eights to tens. The role of society should figure out how do we get people who say their lives are a zero in a much better place. I would love to talk about the job piece of these indicators because that's what really interests me in in my work and that's what interests this podcast is how work can contribute to to productivity well-being engagement and what are the markers of failure what's your take on what can be put right in the job world, John, you strike me as an optimist. Well, one of the biggest challenges we have right now is how the jobs picture globally is measured. Julia, we talked earlier about unemployment. The challenge with unemployment is it may be a good measure for wealthy countries, 
but it doesn't seem to be the best measure for the entire world. Why? Because when you look at the list of the top 10 countries in the world with the lowest unemployment, it doesn't really tell us much. So countries like Burundi, the levels of unemployment are less than 1%. Why would that be? And the reason for it is that many poor countries don't have enough money from their governments to provide unemployment assistance. So it forces people to just do whatever work possible, even if it means selling trinkets on the street or basically begging. And so when a government official comes around and says to you, um, did you work any hours in the past week? And they'll say, of course I worked. Now, they didn't have meaningful work, but they definitely work. So it means technically they are not unemployed. And that's why in 2019, the ILO said global unemployment was 5.5%, which if you ask any economist, they'll or many economists will tell you that the natural rate of unemployment is 5%. So it looked like our job situation was pretty solid, when in fact, that's not the case. And again, the reason for it is, is that we find that about a third of all people in the workforce are self-employed. Now in the West, when we hear self-employed, we think of this as a badge of honor. You might want to be the next Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, um, or you're doing it for freedom. You open a bar down the street and you're your own boss and that's wonderful. But the reality is, is that most people who are considered self-employed in terms of, in terms of an employment category, they're actually begging. And we find that more than half of them live on less than $2 a day. And that's a problem. So one of the things that I recommended in this book is let's change how we measure the global jobs picture. Because if instead of measuring who has no work whatsoever, what if we measured only who has great work? So not just a full-time job, not just a steady paycheck, but also the emotional side on whether or not they have an emotional attachment to work, whether or not they feel good at work. And Danny Kahneman actually said this to Adam Grant. He said, what Gallup's measuring um, actually, it was our employee engagement metrics. He said, this actually looks like well-being at work because we ask things like whether or not you have a best friend at work. And so when you isolate Gallup's Q12 on those that have uh, are working full time with a paycheck of the roughly 3.3 to 3.4 billion people who want a great job, we find that only 9% or around 300 million actually have one. That's the real global jobs picture. And if we held leaders accountable to that, as opposed to this sort of unemployment figure that doesn't seem to be serving us properly, I think it would hugely make an impact, not just on global productivity, but also on how people's lives are going. But I think what we do find that's so fascinating is that when you look at anger, stress, sadness, physical pain, and worry, whether or not you're a knowledge worker or not, if you are actively disengaged at work, the daily negative emotions that you experience are the same as those who are unemployed. If anything, you experience slightly more of those negative emotions than those that are unemployed. And when you compare them to your peers who are thriving at work, they're engaged at work, they are almost 50% less likely to experience many of those negative emotions. That goes to show you the very pain that many of those individuals are experiencing throughout just the overall workforce. What I always like about the, the Q12, John, that you just mentioned is, is that very first question, which is such an acid test of how good a job you're doing as a manager. You know, do you know what is expected of you in your role today? And I'm, af I'm afraid the data is often very disappointing, isn't it, from the employer's point of view? I mean, people, uh, same with the engagement scores. I mean, I mean, Gary Hamill has long been pointing to your, your engagement scores and saying this is a, a global crisis of bad management. 
It's incredible, right? Because a lot of times when you speak to CEOs or CHROs, they go, we do employee satisfaction surveys, we do employee voice, or we do employee engagement. But you can tell when they're doing it as a box checking exercise, because when you actually look at you know solid statistics, when you ask them whether or not they're measuring engagement on a scale of one to five, and whether or not they have actual benchmarks, so it's not something that they're just doing internally, then you can see the real discontent that exists in their workplaces. But to your point, Stefan, the first question that Gallup asks is, do you know basically whether or not you agree or disagree with the following statement? Do you know what's expected of you at work? Now think about that. If a manager were to just sit down with their colleagues and clearly explain that, imagine what we could do for human productivity. But also, again, and the statistic is that over half of people, workers cannot strongly agree to that particular item. They don't know what they're supposed to, they fully don't know what they're supposed to be doing in the workplace. It's amazing. But not only imagine what could you do for productivity, but also imagine what you could do for just their daily stress. For people who don't know what they're supposed to be doing, can really feel like complete madness, especially when you have somebody that's looking over your shoulder and saying, well, what are you doing? This isn't right. And you're saying, well, I, I, I actually don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing. So there's a lot that we could do for human productivity and for uh, employees' well-being just in that item alone. One of the things I'm finding, John, talking to a lot of executives and leaders is that they are struggling to believe that they can make change happen because they are still quite stuck on the idea that they lead from top down and minimize um, responding to bottom up. In other words, they don't really want to listen to their workers. Is that a fair characterization? It seems to me very much written all over the tension around offering flexibility, but clearly wanting people to be back in the office? I don't know. That's a great question, Julia. And and I don't know the answer. But what we do know are the data. And although, uh, at least in the United States and globally, we've seen that people do feel more engaged over kind of the past decade. But in the United States, it started to go the opposite direction just about two years ago. So, you know, despite the fact that in 2019, we had, I think, almost 200 CEOs in August of 2019 that signed a business roundtable declaration that said that you know they were all now going to advance stakeholder capitalism. They weren't going to just focus on their shareholders. They were going to do it with these five stakeholders, and one of them include their, included their employees. And I know that many of them through you know the SASB requirements, et cetera, have these new requirements so that they can report how the voice of the employee But again, to your question, Julia, are they actually doing something about it? Well, we probably would have seen a change in the data in the opposite direction that we've seen because it's gotten worse. So that would not suggest that the listening is actually taking place. So again, to your point about whether or not they care or or really want to, I I guess I can't put myself in their shoes, but the data don't suggest that that they do. Well, the other great work that Gallup's been doing over the years, John, of course, is is talking about these sometimes micro level interventions, your, your assessment of what actually works in practice in the workplace. Has, has some of that, uh, have some of those lessons altered in the context of hybrid work or does it just put even greater emphasis on those skills and the, and the effectiveness of these interventions that managers can make? Well, hybrid work is absolutely changing things for everyone. But let's be clear. And Stefan, I'll just kind of bring up the Q12 because we work with a lot of organizations that say, is the Q12 old? 
I mean, why haven't you guys updated it in, you know, in two decades or something to that effect? And I would almost, and so, yes, we have. And we ask, you know, dozens, hundreds, if not thousands of different items in workplaces so that we can, you know, pinpoint various issues that leaders are trying to work on. Like if there's, there are a lot of companies that we work with and what they are focused on is creating uh, customer centricity. They want to create a culture around the customer. And so we ask various things about that. But it, this goes back to basically the fundamental needs of workers, almost like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but for the workplace. And so when you have these sort of basic things like recognition, having the opportunity to do what you do best, or having the things that you need in order to do your job effectively, these are not items that change just because we all went on Zoom. These are fundamental human needs of workers that just hasn't changed over the past few decades. And quite honestly, a lot of them are more relevant now than they ever have been, particularly the item on best friend at work. So we can see clearly in our data, you know, resiliency is you have better resiliency when you have strong relationships in your life, whether it's at work or not at work. And we can see that people are more resilient in workplaces if they have best friends at work. We can see that they're more productive. We can see that they're less likely to leave even admit um, during this sort of great resignation in the Western world. So yeah, these items are just uh, a lot more important today than they ever have been. Do you think the elephant in the room here, John, for corporations, for businesses is scale? That the last couple of decades, the, the mantra has been growth, scale up. There's a, there's a very nowhere office dog barking. We'll let that pass because it, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's reality. Many workplaces are allowing you to bring your dogs in. But, but John, one, the reason I ask that is because the turning point in industrial working strategy was actually when Elton Mayo of what became Harvard Business School unintentionally uncovered the the very point that you're making didn't he at at the at the telephone plant in Illinois Chicago came to be known as the Hawthorne effect whereby accidentally unintentionally they asked very small groups of workers what they felt in different conditions that they thought were mechanical to do with light and to their astonishment, as you know, every single worker metric of productivity increased because the workers were listened to and talked to in small groups. So is part of the problem that modern management tries to mass manage at scale. And that isn't how human beings are. We like to be intimate. Yes, but it's doable. Because the real impact of a, an employee's engagement doesn't necessarily come from the CEO, although it needs to be a CEO-led initiative, it comes from your manager. So we see that 70% of the variance in a, an employee's engagement actually comes from who their manager is. And so whether or not that manager is having regular connects, um, giving feedback, because let's remember that somebody is better off if they're getting negative feedback than if they're getting no feedback at all. Because the worst state of mind that you can be in in a workplace is when you're totally ignored. And again, we see that something that's completely uh, pervasive throughout workplaces that people feel ignored. Um, so I think this is very scalable, but the scalability has to happen through the manager. And again, one of the problems that managers face is that they haven't been trained on what it means to be a great manager. A lot of times, and again, you mentioned the Hawthorne effect, another very famous thing in the workplace is the Peter principle that we you know, kind of take the star and make them the boss. And we assume that because of their technical expertise, that they therefore um, can be a great manager. And the challenge is 
is that maybe they do have that underlying talent, but they need trained on understanding the human needs, or as I mentioned, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs within a workplace. And if they're not trained on those things, it makes it really difficult in order to be a great manager. So I think the answer to how to executive scale, they need to do more training on what it means to be a great manager. Well, John, thank you for that lovely, all-encompassing final answer. What our listeners can't see is that behind you, there's a wonderful striking picture of the globe and you, of, the, of the earth. And you, you remind me that you've really given us a global as well as a local and a national vision and a story today. So thank you very much for doing that and bringing all your expertise to bear this today on, on the NOAA office and, and best of luck with the book. Thank you so much, Stefan, Julia. You've been listening to me, Julia Hobsbawm. And me, Stefan Stern. And we will see you the next time. It's an editorial intelligence production. The editor is Callum McRae. You can find us at the Nowhere Offie number one on where else? Twitter. Thank you very much.